This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com geeks, or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. And I want to give a special thank you to Christian Kerman, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 504 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Carol Pinchevsky, who you may remember from our review of Ghostbusters 2016 back in episode 213 our review of Arrival back in episode 230, and our review of Ready Player One back in episode 304. She's written almost 2,000 articles about geek culture for outlets such as Forbes.com, Playboy.com, and Sci-Fi.com, and she's also the humor competition editor for the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. And we'll be speaking with her today about her new book, Turn Your Phantom Into Cash, a geeky guide to turn your passion into a business, or at least a side hustle. And now here's our interview with Carol Pinchevsky. All right, so we're here with Carol Pinchevsky. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Okay, so how did you get to be such a geek in the first place? <laughs> well, I was kind of born this way, you know. Um, I actually once wrote an article about what makes people geeky, and it seems like I had every single one of the parameters. Well, based on my interviewees, um, I'm left-handed. It turns out like a, a large number of people are left-handed. Uh, it turns out that a lot of people who are geeky had health problems when they were young and therefore they were stuck inside reading. And, and that was me. I, I was quite ill as a child. Um, a lot of people that I've interviewed also said they, they experienced alienation. So they don't actually feel like they fit in with the rest of society. And, uh, that, that was me as well. So yeah, I've just, I've always been this way. Do you remember like what were the first what were some of the first geeky things that you got into? <laughs> I think I realized I was not like other children around the time I was about 7 when there was a creature feature marathon on television and I I watched The Mummy and Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein and Dracula and all of those films and I just I fell in love with Bride of Frankenstein so I suppose that was my first real real fandom. But then as I progressed, I was given The Hobbit. And then I fell in love with Twilight Zone and Star Trek. And the the funny thing is, there used to be a point where I knew everything there was to know about geek culture, because it was kind of contained within a few spheres. You know, there were only so many television shows out, you know, a few science fiction movies came out a year. But now there's such a proliferation that it's it's actually a little overwhelming. Like I, I actually can't keep up. And, and that's both, you know, kind of sad for me, but also incredibly exciting that it, it's not going to be, it's not going to be something as stigmatized as it was when I grew up. So you said, you said you knew you weren't like other kids. So did you know any other kids who were into this stuff or adults or, or anyone, or was it just, you're out there it, it, by it yourself? It wasn't until, it wasn't until high school. It was not until high school when I met the uh, Science Fiction Society. 
And prior to that, I had a few people tell me like, oh, have you heard about Dungeons and Dragons? I think you would like Dungeons and Dragons, but I never had the opportunity to play it because I didn't know anybody who wanted to. So I, I met my, my people in <laughs> the science fiction society. And then Good. afterwards, uh, in college, I joined the science fiction society. Cause, cause I was going to say, cause I, I've met your mom and she doesn't seem super geeky. She seems more like the pretty popular <laughs> type. Yeah. Yeah. No, she was, uh, she was too quiet to be popular, but my father is the one who actually kind of introduced me to science fiction as well. So when I, um, when I was about 11 years old, you know, the, when, when Obi-Wan handed Luke the lightsaber and said, your father wanted you to have this when you were old enough. Uh, another thing that happened to me was when I was about 11 and my father handed me iRobot and the puppet masters and said, I love these books when I was your age. I want you to have them. So when I was old enough, my father gave me those two books <laughs> and I, and again, I, I fell in love. You know, that's, that's what I kind of like about being a geek. I am, I am always wildly in love with something or other. Yeah, that's cool. I, I really liked those books uh, growing up too. And, and yeah, my parents, my parents are both big science fiction fans. So that uh the whole good. time I was growing up, they were giving me all that kind of stuff to, to oh, read. Oh, good. Yeah. I mean, well, both your parents are geeky? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they're both scientists. So they met in oh. quantum mechanics class. So <laughs> My mother once took um, – she had to take a physics class, a science class for school. And so she signed up for elementary physics, <laughs> thinking it was going to be simple. <laughs> and she walked out. <laughs> So I was just, I went back and I just, uh, you know, we just reviewed Ghostbusters a week or two ago, the new one. And so I mm -hmm. went back and listened to our other uh, Ghostbusters panel that you were on back in episode 213. Mm -hmm. And so this, this part near the end kind of caught my attention. You said, quote, I was really under the threat of being beaten up pretty much on a daily basis. I was a teen in the 80s. This jocks versus nerds war really did exist, at least in the world I was raised in. And I was very much struggling to survive. So tell us about that. Yeah, great. Yeah, uh, it's true. Um, I, I was raised in Bergen County, New Jersey. I was smart. I was small. I was completely non-athletic. I wore big glasses. And when I say big glasses, we couldn't afford new glasses. So I had my mother's glasses. So they were really big for my face. And, uh, you know, I, and, and they were I, the right prescription. No, <laughs> but it was better yeah. than no glasses whatsoever. Oh, wow. So, uh, yeah. And, and I was constantly picked on and I'm sure I didn't make it easy for myself, but I was the girl who always raised her hand whenever there was a question because I always knew the answer. In fact, you know, I, school was so easy for me that I, I, kind of slept my way through it. So I know, knew all the answers and then I didn't interact with anybody. So, you know, I, I think looking back, had I I've been a little more self-aware, I would have tried to, you know, onboard other people and say, hey, yeah, let's talk books. But instead, I just kind of kept to myself and that kind of made me a target. But yeah, it was, uh, it was kind of vicious. <laughs> it was, it was rather vicious growing up. So this up. was, was this girls beating you up or boys? Um, both actually, <laughs> <laughs> both actually. Well, I was never physically harmed because it turned out my, my brother protected me and he was younger than me but basically he was just so cool that everyone respected him because you know he didn't care it turns out the key to being cool is just not caring what people think about you or or say about you so that was or at least it was in that time and place <laughs> 
Uh-huh. So, yeah. But then you said, then you discovered the science fiction society and that kind of changed I, everything or? I did. I really did. But also moving to high school, but also moving to a, a different town. Um, uh, I come, from, I had come from a town that was very working class, very, very, you know, church on every block, alternating with a bar on every hmm. block. And then we moved to a slightly more affluent town and there was a science fiction society. So that, that made it. Um, easier for me. I still mm-hmm. graduated in three years, not because I was actually, you know, extra smart, but because I was extra dedicated in getting the hell out of there. Yeah. Well, so it, so it says in your bio that you attended Clarion West, the Clarion West Writers Workshop in 95. So was I that did. kind of your next big step in the science fiction world or? I, well, no, actually, wait a minute. Oh my God. Did I attend 94 or 95? Uh-oh. <laughs> I think it was 94. <laughs> <laughs> 1994. Uh, time to happen. time to pulp that uh, pulp the print run and oh my uh, god, that wow, <laughs> that's that's how old I am. I'm forgetting the, <laughs> I'm forgetting the year they attended Clarion, and it was such a seminal experience. But no, no, no. Um, what happened was I was living in Philadelphia at the time. I attended Temple University at one point, and I met, of course, the Science Fiction Society, and and. The, sci- the Philadelphia Science Fiction Society, PISFIS, had its own writer's workshop. And so I, I joined that. And then I got roped in by Daryl Schweitzer to work for Weird Tales. And I, I was a, an editorial assistant under Daryl Schweitzer and George Sithers, which was quite, quite an experience. We got all sorts of amusing mail. <laughs> my, like, my, like, like my, what? My favorite anecdote with the mail was that I, I opened up this, um, this, this envelope and there was this story and it was on rice paper. Do you, do you know what rice paper is? Uh, only by reputation. I don't know it, if I've ever actually encountered any. It's incredibly thin, almost sheer and incredibly crinkly paper. Uh, you use ripe rice paper because it was, it was really very, thin and cheap to mail. So I got, you know, so it's the first time I'd seen rice paper since the seventies and I, I pull it out and then I read the story and the story was uh, just an old woman sitting in her chair and suddenly a man leaps out and stabs her. The end. And I'm, yeah. I, I'm looking and then I look at this and I, I read the envelope and I didn't, recognize the the return address and i said well this is very strange and someone said how so and i said oh guy just leaps out and stabs his mother and i don't recognize the address and the guy said oh yeah yeah that guy he's a prisoner this is prison mail and every week he sends in a new story that is a variation of a man suddenly killing an older woman usually his mother you know, sometimes it's defenestration, sometimes it's decapitation, but, but there's always a murder and it's always a woman. And I said, Oh, not only am I not going to write the rejection letter, I'm going to make sure your name is on the rejection <laughs> letter, Daryl. <laughs> and this was weird, weird tales. It was just out of George Sither's house, right? Yeah. One, two, three, crooked lane. Yeah, yeah that, that was a king long time of, ago. King of Prussia. I know the address well. I sent a lot of stories there. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, I don't think I read any of yours. I think that was before your time, but yeah, it was, it was so much fun. It was, it was one of the very few times I ever felt like I was at home in a job. Mm-hmm. And so then Clarion was after that or? Oh, well, so I had joined the Philadelphia Writers Workshop and I had my short stories workshopped. So after that, I was able to apply to Clarion because, you know, you can't just apply to Clarion and get in. You actually have to write something, you know, not terrible. So I workshopped, I workshopped, I workshopped, and then I applied. Uh, and so then what was what was your Clarion experience like? My Clarion experience was uh, delightful. It was so hard and so much fun. It was really, you know, some of the best six weeks of my life. I can't recommend it highly enough, except that, you know, just be prepared. You're going to work your ass off the entire time. You know, sleep, sleep is great, but, you know, say goodbye to that. <laughs> <laughs> So yes, and I met one of my best friends there, and everyone there. I just, I just completely love. So, and and the other thing I like about Clarion is if you meet a Clarionite, you say, "Hey, we've been to Clarion together." Well, even if it's not together, we we have that same same shared experience. I love Clarion. So, so who is your best friend that you met at Clarion? Melissa Lee Shaw. She is absolutely wonderful. She's one of my best friends. I have a sister from another mister, so I call Melissa my my best friend. But yeah, she's she's an incredible writer and she's been in analog, as mobs, just you know, short stories. But she hasn't been writing very much recently because she got a jobby job in the video game industry. Huh. And now That's she cool. is now she is retired from that. But she helps me judge the FNSF humor competition because in addition to writing, I I I'm the competition editor for the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. And and she's one of my judges, my co-judges, which is to say, I call her up and I say, Hey, you should be the judge of me. So she, she, I, I present a list of potential entries and I see if I agree with, with her and my, my, one of my other readers, John Ordover. Uh, who, so, who so at that at that point, did you think you were going to be a fiction writer or were you writing yeah. or thinking about writing nonfiction yet? Or Yeah, no, no. <laughs> I, uh, so I wrote a book and that didn't sell. And that's still, you know, very sad to me that my fiction book didn't sell. But I, I started working as an editor and then I moved to New York City, well, back to New York City because I'm from northern New Jersey. And I, and then I, volunteered for something called the New York Review of Science Fiction. And from there, I met um, David Hartwell. And and then he told me that, you know, maybe should be writing nonfiction. And in the exact same week, another clarionite of mine, Michael Belfiore, he told me, hey, I'm making money writing nonfiction. And so I thought like, okay, well, let me give it a shot. I wrote a few articles and then, you know, I eventually decided like, oh, I could be writing about something geeky and not just health articles. So hmm. I, I started applying to geeky markets and that, that worked out. And then, then I found out that one of the editors of sci-fi back when it was SCIFI was Scott Edelman and Scott 
knew me because he rejected me all the time because mm. he uh, he had been editing I think it was science fiction age yeah prior to that so so he rejected me all the time I thought like well maybe he'll just reject me again but at least he's really quick about it he was mm. you know the fastest read in the West so so uh, I I applied and he said yes I'm like shocking so that's how that started. That's cool. I want to like just pause on the New York Review of Science Fiction for a second because I think that's where I met you the first time, right? Was it David Hartwell's house? Yes. Uh huh. You started volunteering too. Yeah. So this would be I, what, what, like early two thousands or something? Like yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I remember asking you for music recommendations, <laughs> and I, I started listening. So yeah, thanks for the music recs. Okay, uh, I thought you were gonna. You're going to say that I had bad taste in music because I, no. I I really like uh, sort of pop, like really popular, like pop top twenty five pop uh, music. So well, then it happened to be a good week. <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't listen to pop. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. So the, so yes, yeah, so we've known each other almost twenty years. Huh? <gasps> How about that? Oh my, oh my god! No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I guess so. Well, yay. Yeah, I'm. I'm glad that uh, I know great people. Yeah, um, and so it says in your bio that you've written almost two thousand articles about geek culture. Yeah, so yeah, that's that's a lot of articles. Yeah, um, when I wrote for Sci-Fi, I just wrote as many articles as I could. You know, I as many articles as Scott would accept, and then, uh, and then after Scott Edelman left, I wrote under other editors and I just kept writing and writing and writing. And if I could write two articles a day, I would, if I could write three articles a day, I would. So it just worked out. And so also in your bio from uh, your old bio from the podcast, it says that you've interviewed people like Neil Gaiman, Daniel Craig, Matt Smith, and Lucy Lawless. Yeah. That was when I was writing for Forbes. I was the official geek blogger for Forbes for uh, two years. Two years. Yeah. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun doing that. Do, do any of those celebrity encounters stand out in your mind? Um, celebrity encounters standing out. Well, Lucy, Lucy Lawless was surrounded by people. They just flocked to her. She could not move because people just just encircled her, and she was just radiant and wonderful. Um, let me think. What other stuff? Oh, right, right, right. My favorite celebrity account encounter was, I guess, uh, George Takei. Um, he cursed me out. <laughs> I got him to curse me out. <laughs> I, I interviewed him for Sci-Fi, and uh, he said that. He was donating his uniform as Sulu to the, to the museum of uh, some Asian American museum. I think it's in Los Angeles. And I said, that's because it doesn't fit you anymore, right? <laughs> he <laughs> laughed and he said, damn you. <laughs> so yeah, that's, yes, that's why he, uh, that's why he went. <laughs> he, yeah. That's what he said, rather. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's a great that's a great story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but um, he was fun to interview too because uh, we had we had a bit of banter because he's really very Los Angelino and I'm very New York, so we would we we kind of dissed each other a tiny little bit, but yeah, all in good fun. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so so you've now you've written your first book. It's called Turn Your Phantom into Cash. So how did you uh, get the idea to write a book? 
Well, my friend Heather Krasna, she wrote a book called um, Jobs That Matter. It's about getting a job in nonprofits and government work. So it's basically, you know, doing a job you love if you love saving the world. And she said, why don't you write a book about jobs that you love, except, you know, doing what you love, which is science fiction fandom. And I said, sure, sure. But then I got busy writing other things. And then sci-fi gave me an assignment saying, hey, why don't you write about uh, people working geeky jobs? And I thought, "Uh uh-oh, if I don't write this book, someone else will. So that was one of the impetuses. And the other was, I went to a convention, I went to New York Comic Con, and I looked around the dealer's room, and I saw thousands, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars exchanging hands every hour. And I thought, wow, that's that's a lot of, you know, potential IP infringement going on. <laughs> I, I I hope that people use caution because, you know, this is someone else's IP that people are selling. So that's that's what really got me thinking. I should I should write a guide to make sure that people do what they love and yet respect IP law. So maybe just for, for people who might not know, you want to just explain. So you were talking about people selling like Spider-Man t-shirts or something when they don't have the rights to sell Spider-Man t-shirts. Right, or- right, right. If you, if you create um, a character, it's yours and you can make money off of it. If you create a story, the moment you write it down, it's yours. You own that intellectual property. And so that's great for you. But if someone else has created this intellectual property, that's then you have to license it in order to use it. However, there is a way to use someone else's IP without getting a license, and that's called fair use. And fair use um, legally asks four questions, which is, what is the purpose of the use um, like if you use it for educational purposes, it's much like much more likely to be considered fair use than if you sell it for money. Um, what is the nature of the original work? Uh, for example, if it's a creative work, it is less likely to be considered fair use. Um, what is the amount you use? Uh, so if you use uh, an, an entire movie in its whole, that's probably not fair use than if you use like an, a, a cell or a particular background image or and what is the effect on the market so are I'm, you I'm just gonna, placing i'm gonna go out on a limb and say if you use an entire movie that's definitely not fair use i think I, I, I i'm think no right. <laughs> i'm no ip lawyer but uh... <laughs> I, I i tend to agree with you dave <laughs> and so what is the effect on the market are you displacing the original market for example there was a Harry Potter lawsuit. J.K. Rowling sued one of her fans who created a dictionary, a or sorry, encyclopedia of Harry Potter. And she had actually praised it when it was online because, you know, she's, she actually said she used this to look up references for her own book, kind of like um, the uh, – People who helped George R. R. Martin with *The Song of Ice and Fire*, they had created uh, an encyclopedia, and he used it as a reference. But then, uh, the moment this person had turned the encyclopedia into a book, 
Rowling sued him because it was displacing her market. She wanted to sell her own encyclopedia. And of course, she owns the IP, so she won the case. It was it was funny. So you, so you mentioned in the book this uh, this play called Puffs. Yes, <laughs> and that's great. So my, my girlfriend Steph and I went went to see this, and so yeah, it's basically like what what were the Hufflepuffs in Harry Potter doing while all the you know more important characters were were having big adventures? What were the Hufflepuffs doing? And uh-huh. Steph's a huge Harry Potter fan, and I'm I'm not, so I found the thing honestly almost completely incomprehensible. <laughs> um, but I didn't realize until I read your book that the reason it's called Puffs is because that was like just far enough away from Hufflepuffs, I guess, right. to, to not be infringing. Yeah. And the author said he made extra special, certain, careful, sure that he did not use any infringing language. So I don't know if the words avracadabra ever uttered, other, utter, were ever uttered from the character's lips, but he, he said that, uh, he tried very hard not to step on Rowling's foot uh, toes very much. Uh, but the funny thing about that is that he had never really written before. He was an actor and he and his friends just kind of workshopped it. And then it became a hit. It became an off-Broadway sensation. And he had had almost no experience. Like, oh boy, it it's happening to people. Just just not me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but good. I'm glad. I'm so glad for him. Yeah. Yeah. So so the book, it's really aimed at people like that. Like if you're a big geek and you want to sell, you know, some sort of crafts that you've made or or sort yeah. of anything like that that you might sell at a you know at a convention or right. or things like that, then and you need to know sort of the practical aspects the legalities you know this is the book for you oh right i'm i have to say right now my my uh publishers told me everything i say here cannot be taken as legal advice and i've interviewed lawyers and they said anything i said can't be taken as legal advice but i think you have to hire lawyers first for for their advice to be taken seriously but yeah i what i what i really want to see is restraint when it comes to making your products. For example, uh, if you mass produce, chances are it's it's not fair use. So I would like to see uh, fan lawsuits not happen. So a way for that to not happen is to not really draw attention to yourself by, say, mass producing. Mm-hmm. So so how did you sell, like, did you approach a publisher with a pitch or like how did the actual uh- book contract come about? Oh my God. Oh, it took years, by the way, years. Uh, I mean it like four or five years to get this book sold and into my my grubby little hands. Uh, I had an idea. I pitched it all over town. I got rejected all over town. And then I, I retooled my pitch based on some other advice, repitched it again, got rejected all over town. And then I went to the Writer's Digest Pitch Slam, which happens in New York City. And I looked it up and then I saw, oh, look, it's happening next week. So, and I happen to live in New York City. So that was, that was, you know, a given. I went and I pitched, I rehearsed my pitch. Um, what a pitch slam is, is you 
a bunch of agents show up at this hotel and you go in and you say, well, these are the agents I would like to represent me. And then you, you sign up for a session and then you pitch those agents. And I pitched three agents and I, sorry, I pitched four agents and three agents said yes. And then the first agent dropped out several months later because he had personal issues. And so I went back to the second agent who declined to accept me. And then I went to the third agent who said yes. And that is now my agent, Rita Rosencrantz. So she said, I will only pitch this in one place. I only have one place in mind for it. And that was career press. And then luckily they said yes. So here I am. And it took four years. Five. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So so making money, uh, writing books about how to make money as a geek, <laughs> not necessarily the best way to make money. No, no, geek. but but writing articles makes money. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. Um and the market isn't very hot. Well, sorry, the market is hot as a geek writer, but it's not as lucrative as I would like it to be. So what I've been doing recently is uh, using geek references in business writing. So I've written articles on, you know, um, uh, Doctor Who and change management. And I've written articles on uh, security and Star Wars Rogue One. And I've written, you know, Game of Thrones and uh project management so i'm i'm able to be geeky and get paid <laughs> so you have to appeal to the the people who are into the geeky stuff who also have money you also yeah <laughs> it's like a, a doctor specializing in diseases of the rich <laughs> <laughs> yeah so that's how i that's how i manage to make a living i can yeah. i make money as right now i'm making money as a business writer Oh. But I geek it up. Yeah. Well, that's cool. Okay. So, so you you get the contract. I guess career press. They're like, okay, let's do it. Let's do the book. And so, then, what was your process like for researching and and writing the book? Right. Well, um, researching was actually easier than you would think because I happen to know so many people in geek culture. I happen to know people who make money selling objects and they introduced me to people who also did the same thing. And from there, it just, I had too many interviewees. Some of them, some very good interviews had to be left on the cutting room floor because I had word count I had to stick to. So that part was sad. But um, the good news on that is I'm about to create a newsletter where I can, you know, send off the interviews that I had done that I couldn't use in the book. So it will be sort of added. I, I, I did. I did. I did notice there was only one quote from David Bar Kirtley. <laughs> and we spoke a long time. Oh my God! Yes, you were. You didn't. You were not on the cutting room floor, though. You could have been. You know, you had a much longer interview. But I am just thrilled I could use you. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm happy I got it's page 125. If anyone wants to check it out, <laughs> yes, wants to see my quote, my one quote. Yeah, but but my God, I. Okay, one of the people I interviewed was um hold on what is his name? Jeff Loeb. Jeff Loeb who was head of Marvel Television. I couldn't use him. In the book, I have this perfectly good interview. So, that part is really depressing. 
I did I did notice that John Joseph Adams had four pages. <laughs> just just just, just oh God! I will release your interview, your, <laughs> your lengthier interview in a newsletter. I swear. <laughs> hey, people, sign up for my newsletter. You'll get some some extra value. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so so how how do people sign up for your newsletter? Oh, you go to my website, carolpinchevsky.com. It's Carol C A R O L. Pin like the needle, chef like the cook, sky like the thing above you. Yeah, I, I will say, you know, after, you know, 12 years of doing a podcast, the one like definitely the biggest mistake I made was not to ever doing a mailing list. Like, really? Yeah, like I definitely. Um, so that's if, if anyone wants geek, you know, business advice that that would be definitely one of my big things is, man, I really wish I had started a mailing list because well, the funny thing is uh, mailing lists are actually quite popular right now. They, but they weren't at the time when you started this, so I can see why you didn't. Yeah, well, because my that. thinking was basically like, well, like, what am I going to say in my mailing list? Just like, oh, hey, I released another episode of my podcast. Like, people know that I, you know, people who care know that. So, like, what mm-hmm. do I have to tell them about? But then I'm kind of like, well, like, I'm sure there, if I if I had kept everyone's or if I had collected everyone's email address, I'm sure there would be a lot of people who would sort of like stop listening to the podcast. But then I would email them and be like, here's this episode I just did. And they'd be like, oh, that sounds interesting. And they would go back and listen to that. Well, and actually. Then, fu- oh, yeah, okay. let, let, let me just say. And then the other thing is like now I have a book coming out and it would be really nice to be able to email all those people, many of whom, you know, would probably have stopped, maybe dropped off from listening to the podcast, but, you know, would be still interested in reading a book by me uh-huh. um, and let them know. So so that's my my thing is do a mailing list. Definitely. Well, the the funny thing is, I've noticed that the people who are most successful at geek businesses, they have multiple channels. They've got the mailing list. They've got the website. They've got the the Etsy store. They've got the Instagram, and they've got the YouTube channel. So it, it seems that the people who are the most successful at business are also the most successful at marketing. Right. Yeah. So. And I'm definitely not one of the best at marketing. So that's why I only got one quote, I guess, in the. In the <laughs> no, in the- that's not it. I, I had to, I had to leave the head of Marvel television out of my book. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. No, <laughs> no I, I wanted you in this book. <laughs> I wanted um, him no. in this book, but he didn't make it. So you did feel great. <laughs> okay. No, that's, that's a good way to look at it. But I, I will say, cause I, and also, I mean, you know, because I do also have Geek's Guide to the Galaxy t-shirts that we've been selling. Oh, yeah. But then cool. actually reading your book, you said, wait, where's the, the quote? You said, um, have a catchphrase from your YouTube channel or a character you've created, print mm-hmm. it on a t-shirt and sell. And so that gave me, I think this is going to be my big, my really big money making idea. Mm-hmm. So in addition to just the t-shirt with the Geek's Guide logo on it, you know, I have this catchphrase that got super, that became a super popular meme, right? No. So in, um, what is it? In uh, my interview with Nancy Kress, I just mentioned, I said, you know... Um, Who taught me know, at Clarion. What, she was one of my teachers at Clarion. Oh, awesome. Yeah, wow. Small worlds. But so uh-huh. so when I was interviewing her, I said I said to her during the interview, I said, you know, what I always tell writing students about being rejected is I say that being a writer and not wanting to get rejected is like wanting to be a boxer and not wanting to get punched. <laughs> 
And she was like, oh, that's really good. And, and, and then somebody, it wasn't me, somebody listened to it and like took that and made it a meme. And now it's every, it's like all over the internet. I, like people just randomly post it all the time. So it's like, I should take that and put it on a t-shirt. David that's, how I find, like, that's how I make the big bucks. Yeah. That's right. Internet famous, but you should. And that advice came from a writer, Aaron, no, Alexandra Aaron. That's it. Alexandra Aaron, who is the marketing god. She is, sorry, goddess. She is, she's just astonishingly good. And she, pretty much all of her advice was on point. And she makes a lot of money on Patreon, but she also makes money because she's, she's kind of a political, uh, explainer on Twitter. And so every so often she comes up with these clever phrases and people like it and share it. And she immediately puts it on a t-shirt and sells it. And then she reminds people like, oh, here are my products. Why don't you buy them? Every so often <laughs> she just has this friendly little reminder and then people do. So that that's another piece of advice that I guess I should have stated a little more plainly. Ask and you shall receive. <laughs> Okay, but so, so you mentioned, yeah, that um, there's people like who you didn't even make it into the book, like this this person from Marvel. But some of the people are like, I was really impressed. It's like David Irwin, former executive director at DC Comics, and right. Greg Tapalian, the creator of New York Comic Con. I mean, there's so, how did you um, line up interviews with these people? These pretty influential people. Um, Greg Tapalian, who? How did I meet him? I met him through another person who runs conventions. Um, I'm not sure exactly how I met Greg Tapalian. But those were both, they were both people that you already, you didn't have to. Um, oh, no, I reached out to him and I said, hi, can I interview you for my book? But he already knew who you were? No, I don't think he did. Oh, okay. I don't think he did. Uh, I interviewed him for my book. And um, how I met David Irwin was that um, an acquaintance of mine, Jamie Roberts, took me to a lecture that he was giving at this private club in New York. I forgot the name of it. Um, oh, yeah, Soho House. And so she happens to be a member of this private club. And so I, she knew I was interested in IP issues. And so I went with her. And that's how I met him and interviewed him after that. It was very kind of her to have done that, by the way, to have taken me to the private club. <laughs> mm. It was so fancy. <laughs> But but so people were generally pretty happy to be interviewed for the book, or like did, you didn't have to go to. Was that the most um, going well, to that private club? Was that the most dramatic links you had to go to, or was it anything more well, even harder than that? Or actually, it, it it wasn't harder. It wasn't hard to get the interviews, but it was hard to keep a few because I had a few people who gave me excellent excellent interviews pull out and say, "No, I'm sorry, I just don't feel comfortable being quoted," and you know. That's a real problem that we have when people don't want to be visible in our culture. I, and I, I kind of understand why we, we've been experiencing a lot of, well, hate internally. And I can't stand that. It's deeply upsetting to me. I mean, fandom was my, my respite from the, the awful world. And the fact that people are now uncomfortable being quoted is very painful. I mean, I had a friend who was an out and proud transgendered person. And the reason she was able to be so is because phantom made her comfortable. 
she was completely not at ease in her body in the rest of the world. But thanks to fandom, she could be who she was. So that, so that was the hard part, not letting people, sorry, the hard part was having people withdraw from being interviewed. So, so sorry, it was, it, had they, had, had they said things that they thought might be that people might take the wrong way or it was just, they didn't want their name appearing in Both. a book I, at all? I, actually, I don't know uh, about one of them, one of them, um, but the other, uh, she happens to uh, work very closely with IP holders. And so I suppose she didn't want to say anything that might be construed as anything less than glowing. And even though I, I told her, like, yes, please check your quotes, but you know, it it was up to her. It was her comfort level. And and, you know, I'm sad, but I have to respect it. So, you know, but it was a great <laughs> they were great interviews, both of them. Yeah. Well, no, that's too bad. But I mean, there's certainly there's like so many quotes in the book and so many people that you talk to that, you know. And now I remember a third. Material. And then I remember a third person who dropped out. <laughs> yeah, I had, I, I did have some interviews, but really it, it kind of was just as well because I had to edit out so many wonderful things from the book because of word count. So that's, the, that I guess is one of the very few ways that the internet is superior to the printed book. You know, you don't have to worry about a word count. I haven't worried about a word count in years. Hmm. Uh, I guess this one one quote, one of the more sort of like striking quotes from the book I wanted to mention is you have somebody who runs conventions mm -hmm. who says, uh, quote, there's one actor who I love to death, but I don't want to book him because every third convention, he destroys the hotel room in some kind of drunken rage. <laughs> and no, he wouldn't tell me who that was. <laughs> <laughs> and I was desperate to know. But I, I think the reason that he is so successful is because he is discreet. <laughs> Uh-huh. Yeah. I was wondering, like, how often can you destroy a hotel room? Because, like, obviously every third convention, that's too much. But yeah. if it was, like, every fifth convention, would that be okay? Or asking well, for, I'm asking for a friend. Well, I, you, I think you have but to look at the rock and roll industry <laughs> of, the, of the 70s, the 60s and 70s and 80s uh, for hotel destruction to, uh, to get a, a baseline to see. How, uh, how people survive and destroy rooms and actually get to go back to the hotel. So I, I, uh, or maybe it's the level of fame. Maybe you have to be ultra famous and then they'll let you back. But if you're just, you know, Joe Schmo and destroy a hotel room, like, well, you're, you're done. <laughs> so, so, so like a, a, an internet famous science fiction podcaster how, <laughs> could, could destroy what? Like probably only like. One out of ten. A coffee hotel urn. Rooms, right? I think maybe just one, co get <laughs> yeah, one yeah. coffee urn. Yeah. Just maybe. knock. I could just knock over the the garbage pail onto yes. the floor. That's that's yeah. all. I, that's all I could get. Or this this hypothetical. <laughs> I know you you accidentally leave a bit of mint on your pillow. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you tip in your hotel rooms. I I tip the. Uh, the uh, wait staff, the uh, the people who clean the room. I always leave a couple of bucks on my pillow. Those people work hard. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Tip your servers, people. <laughs> <laughs>
I also I also want to mention so there's there's an experience I had um, a couple of years ago where so uh, my girlfriend and I were in a Dungeons and Dragons group actually if you listen to the podcast Rajan Khanna was our was our dungeon master mm-hmm. and so she had a she was playing a ranger character and so I thought it would be nice for her birthday that I would get her a a, a miniature of her you know a ranger and and get it painted and I was like oh that'll be cool oh. and so so I got it but then I could not for the life of me find someone to paint it <gasps> um, well I have the solution for you. His name okay. is his name is Reese Robbins, and he has a store, a game store. He has been quoted extensively in my book. He appeared with me at San Diego Comic Con. Uh, I think it was November, and yeah, uh, he he has a painting section of his store, so you can absolutely find someone to paint your figurines. Okay, that is cool. Because yeah, I just had to. I was like, I was like, "Happy birthday!" Here's your unpainted miniature. <laughs> Uh, oh, you could have also given her a painting class. Like, here's a figurine <laughs> yeah. and a coupon. <laughs> uh, okay, because I was going to mention, because in the book you say uh, on Fiverr that there are professional video game coaches and figuring painters, but you yes, did me abs- one better there. You had a, an actual specific person. Uh, right, so but good. but Fiverr also has that. So, so yeah, there are, there are so many talented people just an e- just, you know, a click away. So yeah. you can make that that figurine just spectacular if you want. Of course, the the more care and attention, the more expensive it is. Yeah, yeah. Well, so no, so yes, yeah, so I'll definitely I'll do. It'll only be like six years late, but uh, we'll get that. <laughs> well, my husband three painted. my husband three D printed me some meeples for a board game recently. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. So you don't even have to paint if you have a three D printer with. Multiple group heads. I unfortunately do not have a 3D printer. <laughs> no. Get with a program. <laughs> you did. I, I noticed you did uh, dedicate this book to your husband, who you say is like the finder of lost things or something uh-huh. like that. Okay. Okay. That's funny. Um, we went to Japan on our honeymoon. Uh, he was from England. I was from the United States. And so we earned all of this all of these air miles <laughs> during our courtship. So we had enough air miles to go to Japan for our honeymoon. So we went to a um, a shrine in Kyoto and you got to choose your fortune. You, you picked up a stick and then you handed it to the man behind the table and he would find a fortune for you. And my fortune said, I would be, I would have good luck, but I would lose things. And then when Peter's fortune came around, he would have excellent luck and he would find lost things. And then the man is reading this in Japanese on the flip side, it's English, and he's reading it and he just starts laughing and laughing and laughing. I think we made his day because it seems that our our fortunes were were quite intertwined. So he is the finder of lost things, according to to a shrine. (laughs) (laughs) That's, oh, and if you didn't, and if you didn't like your fortune, you could tie it to a tree, and then the the wind would blow away the bad luck. Okay, that's good. That's good. Good. Uh, more handy advice. Yes, uh, from from Carol Pinchevsky. <laughs> um. So, boy, we're there's like so many things I want to ask you. We're running a little short on time because okay. there's there's like so many things in your bio. I thought were they kind of caught my eye, but I want to talk about the book as well. I guess like let's let's just talk about how I mean, there's a lot of like really good tips in this book for how you can save money. Uh, I'll just mention 
like, for example, I thought it was really clever. You say that Etsy painters will buy thrift store paintings and then paint geeky characters into them. Right. And that it's actually cheaper to buy an old painting than to buy like a blank canvas and a yeah. new frame and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it turns out there are a few artists who do that. There are a few artists who will, who will reuse old canvases and turn them into something fabulous. I think that's such a great hack. Yeah. If I could and then paint, I would like it better, <laughs> but I don't, but I don't sadly. <laughs> yeah. Well, and apparently also, this is another thing I want to mention at, at some of these conventions, they'll charge you $150 a day for electricity for your booth that you need yeah. to operate the credit card, like to take people's credit card information. Yeah. And I so do- you sit. Let me just so, so you quote this one person and she says that she she uses her phone, but then in order to make sure that her phone doesn't run out of power, she just buys a new phone every year. And it's yeah. actually cheaper to do that, to, to have a brand new phone all the time than to pay these electricity fees all the time. Right, right, right. That was Willow Volante of Volante Designs. Uh and when I had her uh, go back over her quotes. She says, I don't think I said that. Like, yeah, I've got it on, <laughs> I've got it on recording. I don't, so maybe it's not every single year, but whenever she needs a new phone, she just buys it as a business expense. Yeah. So it's, a, it's all this really, really, you know, clever stuff that I would definitely never think, never think of. Um, but then I also wanted to, this is like a horrifying story. Uh, this is, it's called How Chris McLennan's Phoenix Fearcon Lost oh, $115,000. Yeah, that was a very sad story. Um, Chris is a friend of a friend, and she she told me this tale. I mean, she has a lot of great um, money-saving tips and and you know such a, an amazing, enthusiastic outlook on life. But the fact is, she didn't have a contract. She had... Um, she had contracted some uh, a haunted house, but she was friends with the owner, uh, and so she was going to hold her her convention, her not convention, her um, film festival, Phoenix Fearcon, at a place where you know it's a bunch of old houses, and so for Halloween you get a haunted house tour. She had uh, reserved this area, but then her friend sold the business, and then. She had to work with a company who said, oh, yeah, we are definitely running a haunted house that very weekend. And so all of the people who were supposed to attend her convention, they just went through the main gate as opposed to her entrance. And so nobody actually paid for the convention. So she wound up losing money. And, you know, she earned money since then her her film festivals have have made her just a bit of money and so she is not out of pocket anymore but that was a a scary look at what could happen if you don't dot your i's and cross your t's legally speaking yeah i I mean i don't know how anyone would ever think to do this but she she would have needed to have the contract explicitly say and by the way we won't (laughs) run anything else at the same time and place that your thing is going to be I agree. How do you prepare for that? Well, you get a lawyer who who knows how to prepare for that sort of thing. You get a lawyer who can who's very good at contract law. Right. And so again, this book contains lots of great legal advice, but it's not legal advice. Get a lawyer. <laughs> Just like this this show. Don't take yeah. anything I say as legal advice. Just want to make that clear. No, David, no. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> All this time I was referring to you for my legal notes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I hope nobody has been using me for, for their legal advice these, <laughs> these last 12 years. Well, that would be a big mistake. Uh-oh. <laughs> Mistakes were made. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so do you want to say, say more, Carol? Like, So just say more about like, yeah, so obviously if you're selling T-shirts or crafts or things at conventions, you know, you want this book. Like who are some other people who would other types of activities you might be involved, like cosplay, I guess. Like, we're, just talk about the different kinds of people who who would benefit from reading, from um, reading this book. Well, well, cosplayers would certainly benefit from this book because I found advice on how to make money as a cosplayer. And one of the most interesting ways, I mean, well, people know to have booths and sell autographs of themselves. Uh, and uh, what else do they do? You know, they and they have panels. You don't make money running a panel, but then after the panel, you can kind of sell postcards of yourself or or pictures. So that part is great. But the most interesting way to make money as a cosplayer is throw a a party um, or an event, a nightclub event, and have a cosplay event and then have people pay at the door. Uh, that runs its own risk, of course, as with Chris McLennan. Uh, you know, if not enough people come, you are responsible for the door fee at the event. But if enough people come, you keep the profit. And and isn't that a cute way of making money? Because, you know, it's a cosplay party. You you can have your own little uh competition and, you know, give the give a little prize to the winner. That that struck me as being a lot of fun, and uh, this book can also be. Um, oh yeah, yeah. This book also kind of speaks to the Etsy seller because um, I I write about something called fan signaling. Basically, if you sell a a Star Wars shirt, well, you're you're going to get that taken down and or sued because, you know, you don't have the license to Star Wars. But if you sell like a galactic hero shirt or a galactic hero dress, well, that makes you less likely to be targeted by IP lawyers. So just kind of make yourself small and unnoticed. And I, I think that advice uh, is good for people who sell Etsy. But um the best advice I can think of, you know, well, the not if not the best advice, certainly the the high road is to get an IP license of your own. Uh, I met somebody who got an IP license to write a, a role playing game, and he had zero experience. And he was very kind enough to let me use his IP application. He just kind of wrote what he thought the company would like to see. And, and then eventually after many years of chasing them down and it took them years, but, um, the company eventually said yes. And that yeah. was for, um, a video game called Elite. And that was the eighties version. And now the modern version is Elite Dangerous. And so he was able to get an IP license that way. Yeah. That, that was news to me that there are, th that there are these, um, IP expos and stuff or licensing mm -hmm. expos and trade shows where you just go and it's just all people that you can license their IP, you know, the people that you talk to to license all these different properties and things. I never even knew that that existed. Oh yeah. And actually another person who 
uh, didn't get into the book. Um, she went to an IP licensing expo and, uh, this was virtually because this was during the height of COVID and she signed up and she tried to get meetings and she couldn't get a single meeting. But just the fact that she signed up, her name was on a list of creators and then someone found her and now she has the IP license for an upcoming TV show that um, she is not allowed to name at the moment. So just by applying for the IP expo, got her an IP license. Hmm. Yeah, that's so, super cool. So, so basically, we're not saying you're automatically going to be rich if you buy this book. But oh no, God, I, but, but but maybe, but maybe, maybe you will. Yeah. Well, one of the things I learned is how easy it is to make money. You know, you just come up with an idea for a T-shirt. There are a million T-shirt companies who will print it out for you. You know, and these T-shirt companies also print out stickers and mouse mats and and coffee mugs. It is just dead simple to make money, but it is extremely difficult to make a living at it because you have to make it your life. You have to market and promote yourself all the time. So, so, you know, be warned for a lot of people, this isn't a full-time job. It's, you know, a kind of a a side hustle, part-time moneymaker for most people. But then again, of course, I've met people who have their own businesses. I interviewed one of the creators of Think Geek. And that was a $140 million business at one point. Speaking of not making living this, I, I was shocked that you say there are no staff salary jobs for writers or artists for comics in America. Can, can you believe that, that? That blew my mind. I that's I feel like I'm I am so torn. I feel I am I rally around these companies. You know, whenever someone puts out a a television show or a movie, I'm there. But when I heard that the only staff jobs are for the accountants, I I kind of want to form a union and and you know, get these people to hire the creatives. That 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 was appalling to me. So I am I am completely of two minds with Marvel and DC. I, so, so just maybe to explain. So, so apparently, even at the biggest comic book companies, all the people who actually write and draw the comic books are all freelancers. They're you know, all they're just, freelancers. They have contracts for that particular project, but and no. Some some contracts last a long time. Some can go five years if you're if you are someone of import. But but if not, you are just a contract day jobber, and so you have almost no protection. You know, your work is not your own. That that's. As I said, I'm I'm very torn about that. I, yeah, I, so just just be aware of that if you're thinking thinking of getting into the comics industry, you might want to start up that Etsy shop as well, or something. Have some. Well, you might want to backup. own your own IP and have your own website, and, and then eventually uh, find a company that will support you. Like um, I think um, Image Comics, you own everything you write. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm I'm not sure about that. I I have to put a a pin on that. I'm not sure it's image comics. I, I think it, I think, I mean, I'm not a big expert on comics, but I, I think that's right. You know, mm-hmm. I think that's kind of, that was kind of the idea behind the right. Behind image comics. So that's, I guess what I would recommend to, to artists who really want to create comic books, you know, yeah. create your own and go to image. Um, all right, cool. So, so Carol, we need to, we need to start wrapping this up. So do you have uh, just any final thoughts about this book or like, like give everyone your final pitch. 
um, on why they should pick up oh, pick boy. up this book. Um, why you should pick up this book? Well, certainly, if you pick up my book, you will learn how easy it is to make money. You will learn how uh, difficult it is to make a living. You will learn. Oh, uh, one of the most important things I learned is that nobody goes it alone. Like there are these stories of you know Steve Jobs and uh, uh, Elon Musk and all of these these creative geniuses starting these fabulous companies, but no, they they really don't. Uh, nobody has just started a business in a vacuum. You you need uh, a friend to help you move some boxes, or you need a husband. Like in my case, you need a husband with health insurance. Uh, in some other cases, you need like um, somebody mentioned their brother-in-law stored their their boxes for them in his basement. Uh, so the idea that there's a solo entrepreneur uh, making their way in the world, you know, blazing a trail that's it's just completely false. So know that you will need help and you will get help because you are surrounded by people and friends and community. And we tend to help each other. Yeah. All right. Cool. Yeah. So yeah. So if you want to make, if you're interested in this sort of thing, you know, making money from your geeky interests and especially if you're into, yeah, like crafts or right. you know, so anything like that, buy, you know, physical products that you can sell. Buy my book because I will, <laughs> I will help you do it right. I will help you do it as well, as best as you can. I, I have advice on everything from bookkeeping to, um, creating your own website to what kind of tweets you should tweet and how you can build up your following. And yeah, yeah, I put a lot of work into this. So I tried to make it the absolute best small business book for geeks that is out there. Yeah, absolutely. And so again, the book, it's called Turn Your Phantom Into Cash by Carol Pinchevsky. And so Carol, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Dave. Bye. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Carol Pinchevsky for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com geeks or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.